Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, With the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God, and may he bless it to our hearts. Please be seated. This week saw the brokering of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas after 11 days of violence. The violence broke out because of some recent activities that occurred in and around Jerusalem. Those activities stoked long-lasting hostilities in one neighborhood of East Jerusalem. Some Palestinian families were threatened with eviction by Israeli courts from homes that they had lived in for years. Uh, it, was, it was a land dispute of sorts, and it stirred up strong emotions from both sides. Israel's strong policing efforts around the Damascus Gate of the Old City, as well as around one of the holiest Muslim sites on the Temple Mount, also fueled a lot of the tensions in that region. Palestinians in the area shared a sense of national and religious outrage. They began to protest. And then Hamas got involved. They began launching rockets at Israel on May 10th, and after thousands of additional rockets and over 200 casualties, the violence has stopped, at least for now. The city of Jerusalem has been a focal point for decades of the broader Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Both sides claim Jerusalem as their own. And this latest episode reminded me of the greater conflict that has existed for millennia over control of Israel and over control of Jerusalem. 
You're no doubt aware that there has been a long history of struggle between various groups to gain control and to assert power over that region. Religious groups, political groups, ethnic groups, and a combination of all the above have, have battled it out with weaponry and with threats to wield control and power over the Holy Land. And today, as we return to the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus and his followers in the midst of one of those conflicts. You see, Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem. He was headed there as the Messiah of Israel. And he was followed by many who were waiting to crown him king. Many were expecting him to overthrow the controlling power of the day. Many were expecting him to liberate the Jewish people from Roman rule. Many were expecting him to reclaim Jerusalem for Israel. There was a tremendous sense of anticipation among all those who hung around him as he headed to the holy city. Though Jesus was headed toward conflict, there was great hope that he would be victorious. But what we find in Mark's gospel is that Jesus went about this anticipated overthrow much differently than anyone else had before him and much differently than anyone else has after him. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem with weapons. He, he didn't plan to use violence. Jesus went to Jerusalem not to take the city by force, but to lay the, the foundation for a much greater kingdom through his service. And he calls all of us to follow in his steps. This morning, we're going to see Jesus delay his right and ability to enter Jerusalem as a conquering ruler. And he did this willingly. He, he did this in order that he might suffer as a servant of mankind. He did this to, to pay the ransom that our sins required. And he did this as an example for us to follow. We're going to see that real victory is not achieved through the demonstration of human power and strength. The conflicts that we encounter in this world are not solved in the ways that the world tends to solve them. True victory in this world has been achieved because we have a Lord who is willing to serve and, and to suffer for us. And He shows us that before we receive honor as Christians, we need to be prepared to serve and to suffer. Christians are to be people who have servant hearts because this is the way our Lord and Savior was. And this is the way that God measures greatness. We've got to follow Jesus in suffering service. We've got to be willing to serve and to suffer like Jesus did. So let's look at chapter 10 of Mark's gospel together. Our passage today can be divided up into three sections and I want to pull some lessons from each section as we consider how we can follow Jesus in adopting a servant mindset. The first section is found in verses 32 to 34. And there we find the, the scary promise of suffering. The scary promise of suffering. Mark writes in verse 32 that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on a hill, so Jesus and the people were literally going up in elevation as they ascended to the holy city of God. And we know that this was around the time of the Passover. Jesus had planned to arrive in Jerusalem for that feast. And so that meant that 
on his journey there, he was inevitably accompanied by other pilgrims who were headed to the holy city as well. And as I mentioned already, there was great expectation surrounding Jesus' arrival. John 11.56 tells us that people in Jerusalem at that time were looking for Jesus. They were waiting for Him. And among those were the religious elite. John 11.57 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. Jesus was headed for confrontation, like the lead-up to a, a pay-per-view prize fight. There was a, a lot of chatter about what would happen. It was Jesus versus the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. But it was also Jesus versus the Romans who ruled the region. But Mark tells us in verse 32 that Jesus wasn't deterred by the conflict that awaited him there. He was out in front leading the way. He was walking ahead of them. And Mark writes that they, which is probably the twelve, were amazed. They were likely amazed at Jesus' resolve. They knew what He was up against. We, we see also in verse 32 that there were other followers who were also afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, like the twelve, they knew how dangerous it would be for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. They, they were likely hopeful that Jesus would, would bring some kind of revolution or change, but they also probably feared for His life. They had probably heard that the religious leaders wanted to arrest and kill Him. Everyone around Jesus was shocked by His willingness to throw Himself in harm's way. But Jesus was set on going to Jerusalem because He knew what He had accomplished there. And He used this opportunity to teach the twelve once again about what would happen to Him. He took them aside and he told them again in verse 33, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So, this is the third time that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. His impending death wasn't a surprise to him. It, it wasn't a tragedy that was outside of his control. Jesus knew all along that this was going to happen. And this third prediction was especially detailed. It was, it was amazingly accurate. Mark confirms later on in his gospel that, that all these things that, that Jesus mentioned did actually happen. He writes in chapters 14 and 15 of how Jesus was mocked and spit on and flogged and killed under the, the Gentile ruler Pilate. Well, this has caused some to question whether Mark made all this up after the fact. It seems impossible to them that Jesus would be able to foresee what He would undergo so precisely. But the reality is, is that it's very reasonable to believe that Jesus could have anticipated what He would face, even if He didn't access any kind of supernatural revelation. He knew that the Jewish leaders had it out for him. And he knew that they would have to get the Romans on board in order to kill him. And he would have known that they would use a cross and would subject him to mockery and physical violence. Jesus also knew the Scriptures. Even as a young boy, he amazed people with his understanding of God's Word. So he would have known passages like Isaiah 52 to 53, which describe the suffering of the Messiah in great detail. There's no need to believe that Mark was, was trying to make Jesus look better than he really was. Jesus knew this would happen to him. 
because he knew that the Jews and Romans would use power and force to maintain their own power and to maintain their own influence. He knew the way of the world. But for the disciples and those who were around Jesus, this was scary. It's, it's unnerving to undertake something knowing that, that you have to suffer on the way. Yet as Christians, the Bible tells us over and over again that we should expect persecution and difficulty in our lives if we follow Jesus. This is our reality. And Jesus reminds us here that to follow Him means to follow Him into suffering. We, we constantly have to tell ourselves as, as Bay Area people that we are not promised an easy life when we follow Christ. And that really is scary. It's not something to be taken lightly. Well, we're not alone. We have someone ahead who has, has led the way. And Jesus said at the end of His prediction that He would rise. It's not all bad. That's a glorious hope that we have as Christians. If we, if we believe and follow Jesus, we sign up for suffering, but we have much greater hope. The promise of suffering can be daunting, but our suffering is going to eventually give way to glory. The problem is that we often want to skip straight to glory. And that's what we see next. In verses 35 to 40, we move from the scary promise of suffering to the presumptuous plea for honor. The presumptuous plea for honor. In, in Luke 18, 34, Luke tells us in his version of this account that the disciples still didn't understand what Jesus was trying to communicate to them. And this is made clear as James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, approach Jesus with a request. And their request is stunning in its presumption. Right after Jesus explained in detail how he was going to suffer and die, they came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we asked of you. Hey, teach, you promise to do anything we ask of you. It's such a childish thing to say if you think about it. So self-centered. They're so unaware of the situation. They're blinded by their own desires. You don't expect grown men to be so blatant in communicating their self-interest. You would expect at least a little more tact. These guys basically wanted Jesus to sign a, a blank check for them. And I think this pre-request, if you want to call it that, in verse 35, betrays some of their, their own misgivings. They wanted some assurance before they put their actual request forward. Uh, they might have been a bit worried that they would be turned down, but the fact that Jesus was now nearing Jerusalem made it urgent. They couldn't waste any more time. All things considered, Jesus was quite diplomatic in His response. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's a simple but very wise response. Because the answer to this question would reveal the hearts and the, and the motives of James and John. This is a question that all of you should ask yourself, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Everyone wants something from Jesus. Everyone wants something from Jesus. What do you want from Him? Maybe you just want Him to leave you alone. You don't really need Him right now. Maybe here you're here or you're listening in out of habit or because you feel like you have to, but you're not feeling it. You just want to get this over with. Maybe you want Him to help you through a tough time. 
You need some support and you want Jesus to provide it. Maybe you want Him to help you to be great. I think this is what a lot of people want. You don't have anything against Jesus. In fact, you, you believe that He's God. You believe that He died on the cross for your sins. You've maybe even been baptized. But what you really want for Him is just to, to put the icing on your life. You want Him to be the, the moral compass of your family. You, you want Him to be a, a, a motivator to you. you. You want Him to motivate you to be a good person. All of us want something from Jesus. And it's helpful to ask yourself regularly, even if you're a Christian, what do I really want from Jesus right now? What we should want is for Jesus to save us in order that we might serve Him. But that's not what we always want. We see James and John's answer in verse 37. They, they said to Him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. James and John wanted a position of honor and glory in God's kingdom. They, they wanted to sit next to Jesus when He was ruling on His throne. Now, notice what's good about this request. These two firmly believe that Jesus was going to establish His kingdom soon. They believed that He was the Messiah. They were expecting Him to sit on His throne soon. They had been waiting for this, but they were blinded by their selfish desires. Their request came out of a, a blend of trust and sinful self-interest. And they were just like us. Many of us trust Jesus, but the reality is that we also tend to just think about what we want and not what He tells us to expect. That was their issue, and Jesus pointed it out. He said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, now the cup in Scripture can be a, a, a symbol of, um, of joy. Think of Psalm 23, my cup overflows. But more often, it's associated with suffering and God's wrath. And, and the phrase that I drink that Jesus uses in verse 38 is an active, futuristic present in Greek. That means that Jesus was already drinking the cup of suffering at that time. That's the present sense. But He would soon drink the, the ultimate cup of God's wrath. That's the future sense. And, and He was actively partaking it. Jesus also asked these two guys, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The baptism here is not water baptism, but it seems to symbolize how, how Jesus would be plunged into great suffering and death. And the phrase, I am baptized, is passive, not active. So an external force, namely, His Father in heaven was bringing this suffering and wrath upon Him. So Jesus was thinking of the sufferings that He would experience in Jerusalem that would eventually culminate in His death. And the passive tells us that this was the plan of God the Father. But the active tells us that Jesus, the Son, willingly endured it. And He asked James and John, are you able to go through that? The correct answer was no. They couldn't drink the cup that Jesus drank. They, they couldn't undergo the same baptism. Any suffering and mistreatment that they might endure would not be the same vicarious, substitutionary suffering that Jesus had to endure. There, there is no way that they would be able to do this. But out of their bold ignorance, they said in verse 40, we are able. And Jesus said to them, He conceded to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus knew that they would eventually suffer in some measure for him. They wouldn't drink the cup and be baptized in the same ultimate sense that Jesus would for mankind, but they would still suffer for the sake of the gospel. In fact, Acts 12, 2 tells us that, that James was the, the first apostle martyred for his faith. We know from Revelation that, that John, at the end of his life, was exiled for his faith in Christ on the island of Patmos. And yet Jesus also said to them in verse 40, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, Jesus could not grant them this request now because this was the prerogative of his Father in heaven. James and John didn't get what they wanted. But Jesus did help them to understand what they would get. They would get suffering before glory. God is so gracious in, and merciful in not granting us everything that we want or ask of Him. If James and John were granted this request, just think of what that would mean. They would be reigning with Jesus by His side in Jerusalem in the first century A.D. after He overthrew the Romans. But Jesus would not have drunk the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He would not have been baptized into death. The ransom for our, our sins would still remain unpaid. We would not be saved. We, we would still be enslaved. If James and John got what they wanted or expected, we would all still be lost in our sin. And if God gave us everything that we, self-interested, suffering-avoiding we, asked for, who knows what kind of terrible situations we would be in. And some of you are, are big dreamers. The world would call you ambitious. The world might even say you're full of vision. You strive for big things. You're, you're, willing, you're the kind of person willing to, to found a startup. You, you want to affect change in society. You, you want to have greater influence in your career. And, and you're willing to ask God for those things. You may even have good desires behind those things. But it's hard to escape entirely from your, your own self-love and your own self-interest. Know that God, that when God doesn't grant your request or, or He answers it in maybe another way, it's out of His kindness because His plan is better than yours. And He may be saving you from some dreadful unintended consequences. Now, some of you aren't that way. You're, you're not big dreamers, but you still ask God for things. And you probably feel at times what, what you want from him shouldn't be that big of a, a deal. It's not that hard for him to do that for you. You would never ask to sit on the right and, and left of Jesus. You just want God to give you a, a better team at work or parents who are a little bit more reasonable or uh, a home you can live in or another child or maybe slightly better health or a potential spouse. And, and God doesn't seem to be coming through for you right now. Don't be deceived and, and don't think that God doesn't know what is best for you and that He doesn't have a good plan for those whom He loves. We have to be willing to put Christ's mission ahead of our own desires for status or a certain milestone or a certain level of comfort and security or, or even a certain opportunity to serve Him, which is kind of what James and John desire. We have to realize that there is a lot of presumption behind our own pleas. We often want more than what God promises. 
We're often like the sons of Zebedee. We, we bite off a little bit more than we can chew, or maybe a lot more than we can chew in our prayers. Are you praying for the mission of Christ in this world? Or are you mainly praying for your own comfort and your own well-being and your own success? On the road to Jerusalem, we have seen, first of all, the scary promise of suffering as Jesus predicted his death. But right on the heels of that, we, we saw how obtuse John, John and James were in their presumptuous plea for honor. They were, they were so infatuated with personal glory that they completely overlooked what Jesus had just predicted. So Jesus corrected them. And in verses 41 to 45, Jesus revealed to them the surprising path to greatness. The scary promise of suffering, the presumptuous plea for honor. Finally, the surprising path to greatness. In verse 41, Mark writes that when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The other ten disciples were mad. It, it doesn't seem like they were upset that John, James and John had, had blatantly ignored and misunderstood Jesus. The ten were probably jealous of James and John. They were thinking, we should have thought of that first. And that's because the 12 disciples were, were a group that had already been arguing about being great. We, we saw that in verse 34 of chapter 9 after Jesus' second prediction of his death. And we see here in verse 42 that Jesus addressed all of them together. They all still need to be taught by Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus wanted them to understand is that the path to, to worldly greatness is power. The path to worldly greatness is power. Jesus said in, in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus appealed to the Gentiles, and His disciples would have naturally thought of the Roman rulers who held power over them in Israel. They were the ones in control at the time, and they flaunted their power. They, they ruled the people under them with a heavy hand. The, the Roman Empire purrs, uh, saw themselves as lords. They saw themselves as gods, and that is the way of worldly greatness. It's wanting to be, the Lord. It's wanting to be Lord. It's wanting to be godlike, to subdue others, to have others serve you. And this is the environment that we continue to live in today. We live in a culture that is all about power. Modern theories that view the world through this lens of, of power have it right in some ways. Our society is dominated by power structures. Those in power tend to flex their authority and often oppress others. We see this in politics and in the workplace and in the arts and in school. We see it in many homes and marriages. We, we see it sadly in the church as well. Pastors abuse the people in their flock. Husbands take advantage of the trust of their wives. Mothers manipulate their children to do their bidding. Interest groups with, with big pockets push their agendas through without regard for those who, who view things differently. Those in certain social, social circles and, and backgrounds tend to get promoted at the expense of others more qualified. Those in the majority ram down their priorities. Those of a certain color judge and mistreat those who look different than them. Now, it's not always this way in every case of authority. But since the beginning, mankind has harbored a sinful desire to be Lord, and that has led to all kinds of unfortunate and harmful consequences. It's led to injustice, and it's led to racism, and it's led to abuse. It's, it's bred distrust 
It's led us as people to isolate ourselves within the tribes that, that we're comfortable in. This is the result of the way of the world. This is the result of trying to be great by gaining control. This, this is the result of men and women trying to be lords of their lives. This is what seeking power and influence can lead to. Jesus simply pointed out what everyone back then already knew. And all of us inherently know as well. In, in the world's eyes, greatness is achieved through power. But Jesus provided a stimulating challenge to the dominant narrative of the world. Instead of trying to overthrow the oppressive power of the world with even greater oppressive force as man has been doing for years, he offered his disciples a surprising alternative. Well, while the path to worldly greatness is power, Jesus told his disciples that the path to true greatness is service. The path to true greatness is service. And in verse 43, Jesus said, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus redefined greatness. If, if you want to be great, you don't need to mass power. Rather, you've got to adapt the attitude of a servant. If you want to be first, you, you must become a slave. You must willingly offer all of yourself into the service of another. Greatness isn't defined by occasional service. It's, it's being characterized by service. It's being known as a servant and a slave of all. What would make us want to serve in this way? What makes someone want to willingly live like a servant? Well, well, Jesus gives us the reason in verse 45. He directed his disciples and he directs us to himself. He said, for even the Son of Man, even I, God in flesh, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus made his purpose for coming into this world clear. So clear. This is why Jesus was born. This is why Jesus performed all the miracles that he did. This is why he spent time to teach his disciples. This is why he was on the, the way to Jerusalem. He came to serve, and specifically he came to give his life as a ransom for us. He paid the price that God required to release us from the captivity we were in as slaves to sin. Some people have said that Jesus needed to pay Satan a ransom. He didn't owe Satan anything. Jesus said in John 18 about his life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And Jesus paid the ransom to God, his Father, the ransom that God the Father required for our sin with his life. That's why he came. And he did it for many. He did it in our place. He acted as a substitute. And His one death brought the prospect of life for many. A life of service is so critical to greatness because the kingdom of God only comes through humility and service. The, the world would remain in its fallen state if everyone continued to live like Adam and Eve and like James and John. James and John were really thinking like modern philosophers and social activists. They were thinking through the lens of power. If they got their wish for greatness, they would be in charge instead of the brutal Romans. But they would not be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And they would still be prone to the selfish intoxication of power that so easily corrupts. 
And they would just be perpetuating the cycle of power and oppression that has been passed down from group to group and generation to generation. People would continue to try to be lords over others and seek a better life for themselves. But because Jesus didn't settle for this as he approached Jerusalem, he brought the prospect of redemption to this world through his death. And through his service, the hope of a truly great life to come was made possible. And so the answer to the oppression that the Jews felt by the Romans and the answer to the oppression that certain people of race and and color and gender and, and sexual identity feel today is not to overthrow the current structures of power. That's not the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer comes through the gospel that Jesus affected through his service to mankind. Liberation and freedom only come when we are freed from our sin. And that liberation came was when, when Jesus was willing to pay the ransom for our sins with his life. Service is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus came not to be served, not to assert his power, but to serve and to give up his life for us. And when we serve God and when we serve others like Jesus did, we demonstrate that we understand that we're not the lords of this world. Instead, we answer to the Lord of lords. And that's when true greatness is made available to us. That's great news. Because every single one of you can be great in God's eyes. You don't have to be born into the right family. You, You don't have to have gone to a certain school or have just the right connections or have made all the right career and investment decisions to climb the ladder of greatness. In God's eyes, you can be great if you're willing to serve because you will be following the example, the greatest one of all. So serve Jesus like, serve like Jesus. Serve for the, the sake of others. Pursue the right kind of greatness. Serve your team at work. We'll volunteer at times for the thing, or yeah, volunteer at times for the things that, that no one else really wants to do. Put in the extra time to, to help someone else get their job done. Serve your family at home. Free your spouse up to do something they enjoy. Serve those you live with by being open and vulnerable about your sins and, and your struggles. Serve your, your kids by saying no to work or, or to your own hobbies to spend time with them. Serve in the church. Volunteer to babysit for our family again, especially if you're vaccinated. Open your home to, to singles for a meal again. Jump, jump on a call or into our Discord server. Or organize a group text thread for the sake of encouraging someone else. Or helping to bear their burdens. Help, help to set up or clean up at church. Serve in the community. Volunteer to be a coach. Join, join your school's PTA. Offer helpful advice on next door. Acknowledge the downtrodden. Serve those whom you pay to serve you. Be kind and generous to the people who help around your home or who deliver your meals and and your mail and your packages. The way of greatness in this world is trying to get as much authority as you can. Be your own boss, be in control financially, have others serve you. That's greatness. But Jesus turns the, the thinking of this world upside down. The path of true greatness isn't power. It's service. We're to be people who have servant hearts because this is the way our Lord and Savior was. We've got to follow to Jesus in, in suffering service. Let's labor to be 
useful to others. Let's do good in this day and age. There are so many opportunities out there if we just look for them. True, true greatness can't be found on a LinkedIn profile. It's not in any of the titles you've heard. It's not measured in champions won, championships won or startups successfully exited. It's, it's not Hall of Fame induction. It's not community recognition. True greatness consists of devoting yourself completely to making others happy and holy. It is obtained when trusting the Word of God. You exert yourself to lessen the sorrows and, and to increase the joys of all around you. It's, it's the William Careys and, and Jim Elliott's and Hudson Taylor's and Amy Carmichael's and George Whitfield's and Charles Spurgeon's and, and, and all those others who the world doesn't even know who have served the Lord faithfully, who are truly great in God's eyes. Some of them were mocked like Jesus in the world. Many of them were persecuted in various ways. But they are remembered and honored in heaven. Their praise endures. So while we've still got the time and we've still got the opportunity, let's be servants and slaves of all for the sake of Christ. Let's really work at leaving this world better and happier and holier than, than if we were never born. This is the path of greatness. This is the path of, of lasting peace and prosperity. This is living like Christ, and this is what God will reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your Son came to this earth to serve and not be served in order that he might give his life up as a ransom to you for our sins. Well, Father, it is through service that, that this world has been redeemed, that we can be reconciled to you, that the, the hope of a, of a new heavens and a new earth is, is real to us. Well, Father, help us not to be intoxicated by power and the narrative of this world. Remind us that the greatness comes through humility and service. And make us better servants who follow in the steps of Christ today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.